The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. The Me Too movement has been empowering for many women and other vulnerable people. Many people believe it's changed the rules for men and boys. If that's the case, what does it mean? During this episode, we're going to explore efforts to redefine or reclaim masculinity. Bryant Smith is the author of Manhood, the Missing Manual, and the keynote speaker at the summit. Hello, Bryant. Hello. How are you, Charity? Great. Thank you so much for talking to me. And I know that you grew up in an urban environment on the south side of Chicago. When you were growing up, what do you think your idea of manhood was? Oh, when I was growing up, my ideal of manhood was you had to be a provider. You had to be a tough guy. You could, you know, you had to be able to fight and defend yourself. And and you were, had to be able to dominate other people, primarily women and smaller people and and all of those things. It was all about being rough, tough, and responsible. So when you went off to college and you encountered people who had not grown up in an urban environment, how did that idea uh, of manhood shape how you thought about other people? I just assumed that if you had not had the experiences that I had had, that means if you had never been on public transportation, if you had never been chased by street gangs, if you had never uh, had to protect yourself or, or to a fight to keep from being robbed, then there's no way you could be a man. So all of those guys that I met who had grown up in the suburbs or in small towns and had never been on the L train or any other form of public transportation, they couldn't possibly be men in my mind. When did you start to question that idea, that way of looking at the world? I didn't start to question that until I actually got into graduate school. So I had graduated college, worked for two years, and then went back to grad school. And I was introduced to a, a guy by the name of Dr. Naeem Akbar and his readings. And once I started reading his work, uh, particularly on visions for black manhood, it changed my whole way of thinking and my thought process. Tell me how it changed your thinking. Well, one of the things it did was it started making me realize that what I had been participating in was this thing called conditional manhood, that the conditions that you grew up in determine what type of man you could be, or even if you were a man. And I really started to wrestle with the idea that it wasn't a condition, it was a concept of manhood that we really needed to promote. And so by his readings and attending some conferences and meeting other men who were uh, strong in their own identity, who knew who they were, both uh, culturally and personally, had a connection to a family and a community. Those things taught me the stuff that was more important about my manhood than the conditions that I grew up in. And this idea of manhood, although, you know, we've talked about the fact that you grew up on the south side of Chicago, this idea of manhood seems to stretch across different kinds of experiences, the idea that your experience is what makes you a man. Oh, yes, certainly. Most men grow up believing in conditional manhood. They believe that the conditions that they have found themselves in are are directly related to the type of men they either are or are going to become. So if you grew up in, in a responsible environment where you had a, a male showing you how to go to work, how to tie ties, all of those things, play into the type of man 
that you either believe that you're going to be or that you are, and how you evaluate other men. It's interesting when you think about the idea of becoming a man, because in our culture, we seem to uh, like to pinpoint a moment. While, of course, it's a process that takes many years and many different experiences, we like to think of it as something that, that can be achieved or earned in oh, a yes. moment. Yes. Most people believe that, that the condition, if you ask any group of men, when did you become a man? You can get a variety of ages, but if you say, well, what happened to you at that particular age? They can tell you an event. In my own experience, I've met people who, when I say, when did you become a man? It could be as simple to them as when they lost their virginity, when they had their first drink of alcohol, when they used illicit drugs, or even when they committed their first act of violence, or if they're paying the bills. You know, those are all things that they point to and say, at that point, I knew I was a man. And unfortunately, in America, violence plays heavily into your becoming a man. I think our, our whole country's history, men were the ones who allegedly went out and conquered this nation and tamed it from the wild people who were here originally. And, and it's, that's how you became a man. You had to prove yourself. And you feel like this idea that, that violence is often uh, the defining moment or the defining characteristic, that's something that crosses across racial boundaries and social economic boundaries? Oh, yes, it does. It crosses racial and socioeconomic boundaries, and it doesn't matter whether you grew up in an urban environment or a rural setting. All of these people or, or this concept of you're not a man until you can dominate other people, and some, sometimes it's in sports, but it's still a violent act. And if you are a person who decides, I don't want to participate in that, even though you may be comfortable in your manhood, most males around you will never accept your manhood because you refuse to, to prove it. Let's talk about your idea that this missing manual for becoming a man. What what do you think's missing? What what would be in that manual if you could give it to people? Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things where if you ask a person, "What happened to you yesterday? You were a boy. Today you're a man. So what happened to you?" They can tell you what happened to you, and so it's like poof! All of a sudden, I'm a man, but I didn't get any instruction. I just became a man. So in this missing manual. I say that there are things like, one, you have to know who you are if you want to really be a man. You know, what does that mean? How much of an investment are you putting into yourself to understand what manhood is? Uh, two, there's something called the uh, sort of you, if you want to compare it to something, think of it when you like you buy a computer, and each computer, in order for the software to work on that computer, it has to have some basic operating systems. And those systems have certain requirements. So that's how it is in this manhood missing, the missing manual and, and what should be included in it. You have some basic system requirements in order for you to call yourself a man. And so I talk about what those system requirements are. And I, what I really like to say is after you sit there and you listen to the keynote, what you're actually getting is a software update so that your system's going to run fully as a man. So a lot of the things that you talk about, uh, knowing how to love yourself and accept yourself, being willing yes. to forgive others, these are ideas that in our culture we think about as more feminine. Yes, we do, which is why that's the, the irony of it. Because we attribute these things to being a kind person, gentle person, understanding your rights, being responsible, because we generally make those attributes those that are feminine, Men shy away from them. 
we don't talk about these things. Of course, we show no emotions. I mean, there's a lot of things that come about as a man that you have to have control over and an understanding of that we just say, hey, that, that's what it means to be a woman. And the irony in that is, even when women do it, we don't give them any credit. It's not given the same amount of weight. But we definitely don't want our boys to do it. I mean, it's sort of like when you, uh, from day one when you're born, you're going to get a blue blanket or a pink blanket, you know, <laughs> and you're going to get this set of skills and these impressions that are going to tell you that these are the things that men have and should do and the way men should feel, think, and act, and this is the way that women should feel, think, and act. And unfortunately, the true things that make you a man are often attributed as female characteristics and qualities. So when you first started sharing these ideas and opening up these conversations with people, what kind of a reaction did you get? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm what we call a, uh, a guy who promotes the concept of critical thinking. And so I always tell people right up front, I'm not here to make you agree with me. But in order for you to disagree with me, you're going to have to think about what I'm saying. And that's all I ever ask people to do. Think about what I'm saying and apply it. If it, if it works for you, apply it. If not, then you have to be able to introduce something better and, and help someone else understand it. And maybe we should be applying that. So I met some resistance. Most of the people, I, I generally hit them with so much at one time that they are kind of overwhelmed and they are in a very reflective process and state of being. So I don't get a lot of pushback from the initial conversation about uh, the things that you are missing as a man and calling people's manhood into question and trying to get them to rethink manhood. Later on, after they've done something, I get something like, oh, but what about this? There's always somebody who wants to come up with an example and say, well, you know, what about this? A person who has gone through these experiences. And I'm like, I'm here to tell you that conceptual manhood will overcome any condition you find yourself in. That's the main difference between being a person who believes in conditional manhood and believing in conceptual manhood. If you believe in conditional manhood, then you're subject to those conditions. And if you believe in conceptual manhood, then conditions don't matter. What advice would you give to parents who, who really want to do better for their boys? Other than buy my book, I would tell them that they need to have a true understanding of where this process is broken down. Because if you look at manhood, I mean, you just gave the perfect example at the start of the show. You talked about all of the violence and the majority of these mass shootings being committed by males. So we obviously have something going wrong. So what harm could it do for us to rethink and try something different? So my advice would be, that our, as parents, we need to start putting more emphasis on value-based manhood as opposed to uh, condition or experience-based manhood. Like Just like parents will go out and they'll buy their sons basketballs or baseballs and make sure that they get all of the training that they need to be the best basketball or baseball player, we need to start doing that without their manhood. We need to put them in spaces where they get a new and different understanding of manhood, where it's going to be okay for them to learn about their emotions, where it's going to be okay for them to experience and display acts of kindness. It's going to be okay for them to understand and show love and affection, uh, build positive relationships. They're going to understand what it means to forgive someone and how to be forgiven. They're going to understand uh, the value of making mistakes. So there's a whole list of things that they need beyond physical uh, 
acts of violence and aggression and, and this whole concept of, of being a certain size physically. And, you know, there's, there's so much more that they've got to get. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too. I've been talking with Bryant Smith, author of Manhood, The Missing Manual. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio. And up next, I'm going to talk with a group of counselors at the University of Iowa. Patrick Galligan is licensed staff psychologist at the U of I. Adam Robinson, executive director of Rape Victim Advocacy Program. And Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. They were part of organizing a summit called What About Men? And we spoke with them about their goals for the event, why they think we need to redefine or reclaim masculinity at this point in time. Well, I think that uh, at the very beginning of the year, one of our uh, campus offices that's really um, defined as a a place where, uh, I guess I'll just name it, the Office of Sexual Misconduct and Response Coordinator brought together a bunch of folks around campus who do work around men and masculinities. And to be honest, it was just sort of to see that we all do this work and maybe we don't have as much communication as we should. So I guess there's sort of a parallel process in bringing men together to communicate a little bit more effectively. Um, But it was a a really meaningful uh, way that we could get connected and talk about ways that we could collaborate a little bit more. So it was a a response to sexual violence on campus Mm -hmm. and, and okay, how can we deal with that more effectively? How did that grow into this? I mean, a a session or an afternoon really looking at many different aspects of masculinity. I think the charge to us was get to know each other, first of all. And after we spent several meetings doing so, I at least I can speak for myself. I think we felt like um, we needed to do something to um, take sort of a more active stance on campus and come together to collaborate in this way. So we thought that a summit that focuses on this work that we all do, but in a really intentional way and bringing together um, experts who could talk to mentors, uh, both on campus and the community, uh, would be a really meaningful way to do something and hopefully have it grow into something bigger in future years. Well, the the sessions don't just focus on consent and healthy relationships. And, and a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about preventing sexual violence, was there a moment, a light bulb moment when you guys were talking to each other and thought, you know, this has to be bigger than that. Adam? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the the realities that we face in all the different aspects of this work that we have the privilege of, uh, of doing is that whether we're talking about dating violence or domestic abuse or sexual violence or even gun violence, um, the, the reality that gender is a piece of all of it. It's a kind of that overlapping Venn diagram, and gender's in the center of all of that. And so to have a space to have some real honest reflection and, and dialogue and discussion, as Bryant mentioned uh, in the earlier segment, we don't often talk about this. Um, and so we want to have some space to talk about it. And the reality is that it has implications broadly in personal relationships and family relationships and certainly in the community as we're all aligned to try and reduce violence. The... Uh the summit in in talking about masculinity and and some of our unfair expectations for men for boys as they grow it's not just about the fact that there are some some very serious problems of 
violence that have grown out of this climate or this culture of masculinity. But you also feel like boys and men are getting shortchanged by this culture. Cody, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think from a very early age, um, boys and men are not given the space or the ability to explore themselves creatively, explore their options um, for what it means to have expression outside of anger. Um, That's the go-to and the accepted form of expression for men and boys is anger or frustration and, you know, the don't get mad, get sad, or don't get sad, get mad. Um, And, you know, I think that there's so much more that boys need to have in order to feel like they can um, express themselves and we need to be giving that space and we need to be giving those options because, when we stifle that, we create a culture that pushes men into this small box of expression, and we're not creating that space for them to explore what um, help-seeking attitudes or attitudes that ask for um, assistance when they might need it or what they need for accommodations when it comes to mental health, um, safety and security, um, and even how to engage in helpful conversations around their relationships. So we need to be giving that to them um, and I just don't know if we have the scripts available yet. And um, as we work through some of that, we, that's what we're hoping that we can give is more authentic scripts for um, parents, mentors, teachers, coaches to give them some ways that they can express what they need, um, ways to express their feelings, ways to express um, their wants and desires in ways that don't just end in aggression or anger. So we're hoping that we can kind of change the way um, we we give boys and men scripts so hopefully we can you know give them a broader definition of manhood that they define themselves so whether that's um, thinking more creatively or asking more questions and being more curious and giving the space to express emotions we're hoping that we can change that culturally so that men and boys aren't forced into this man box that we created at a very early age we want to make sure that we're giving them um, as much uh, autonomy and to define their manhood for themselves as we can. Now, in in putting the summit together, uh, all of you must have spent some time thinking about your own personal experiences. So, uh, Patrick, reflect a little bit on that. And when you were growing up, when you look back now, what kind of messages do you think were being sent about what it means to become a man? Yeah, well, I think the stereotypical things that we often hear about, the sort of male tropes of um, being strong and not showing weakness. I remember so many times where um, I think I was policed into being a certain way as a man, not showing weakness and trying to embody strength in some way. And I, I, I admittedly say today um, and sort of embrace it that being a little bit more sensitive of a little guy was difficult in that. And then I saw myself then policing other little boys uh, into what masculinity should be. So I know I was shaped by and shaped others' masculinities. Um so I, I, I know that that restrictive process around what it means to show affection, grief, um, vulnerability was in some way circumscribed for, for me growing up. And I think the piece that I feel really motivated around is to help other folks who identify as men and boys uh, to not feel circumscribed in that way, to feel like they have a broader range of expression and uh, becoming a dad of a... Uh, a little boy about a month ago. It, Congratulations. Re- thank you. Uh, re- renews that for me. Uh, makes me want to um, find ways that um, the men and boys in my life can be more authentic. 
Adam, do you have anything you want to add to thinking about when you were growing up? Yeah, I think uh, similarly to what Patrick mentioned, and I am grateful I had some some amazing mentors and, and some really healthy uh, models as men, uh, and even the women in my life uh, were strong mentors of mine and, and understanding my identity. And yet, as healthy as all of those influences were, I still very clearly had some expectations that kept me stuck and still still keep me stuck. I still have to work to unlearn. Similar to Patrick, I've got uh, two little ones at home, and, and I find myself being really aware uh, of, of the messages that I'm giving them and, uh, and trying to, to offer as much space for their identity to, to flourish and exist without cutting back on that because society is going to do that. And that's really, I think, part of uh, the opportunity in this work and the, in the summit uh, Wednesday. Is, and I think it's really important to add as we're kind of stepping in and um, – and creating some of these spaces, the reality that these spaces have been created by women for decades. And so um, it's really important that as men, we join uh, with women and join with all genders to be part of this movement, uh, to understand that uh, the ways in which we expect uh, boys and men to be boys and men uh, has been toxic um, and not all toxic. Mm-hmm. So let's how do we kind of lean into the the parts that we want to celebrate and, and carry forward, but also really have some uh, honest dialogue back and forth so that we can push through some of those kind of old um, and toxic expectations that perpetuate all these different forms of violence. Well, it, it is interesting that you say that women have created these spaces uh, for a long time. And I do think about that over the last really 50 years, mm-hmm. there has been a concerted effort on, on the part of many women and right. also men to uh, help women break out of those prescribed gender roles. There's been a lot of thought and a lot of writing and a lot of protest and and a lot of efforts at policy change. And many would say the work is not done, but there has not been a similar movement for men. Do you feel like in some ways our ideas of masculinity are at least 50 years old? Absolutely. And and that's where I think, again, part of privilege is the, the... the opportunity not to have to see things, right? So um, I've known since I was a child uh, which box to check uh, when it came to gender, but I never really had to feel male. I didn't, right, because the society set up for me. I look on movies and listen to music, and I see and experience people that look like me and, and identify like me. I see them in the world. Um, and there's lots of intersections with that, too, with race and, and lots of other f- components of identity, but, but particularly... Uh, pertaining to gender, um, I never really had to think about that in the same way that when I started to work at a rape crisis center about 12 years ago um, and then really realized the the weight of gender. And, and the majority of folks that I worked with there uh, had been uh, harmed by someone that was male. Um, and so that impacted the lens that they saw me through. And uh, so that was, I think, a space to push our privilege back in front of our face and really lean into it because I think the natural thing to do is kind of retract back or get defensive, um, and that doesn't lead to any sort of change. With me, Patrick Galligan, licensed staff psychologist at the University of Iowa, Adam Robinson, executive director of the Rape Victim Advocacy Program, and Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. And Cody, I mean, what, what about you? When you reflect on your childhood growing up and some of the forces that shaped you. Yeah, so, I mean, I grew up in Montana, so big cowboy culture there. And, you know, there was the strong um, influences on that. But I had a lot of support from my family, from my friends, too. Um, 
explore what manhood meant for myself. So, you know, I was a theater kid. I did a lot of dance. I did a lot of arts um, and was always supported in that. But when I went to college, um, I chose to um, join a fraternity um, and was indoctrinated into a culture that is, you know, very white, very masculine. Um, And I felt a lot of pressure to adhere to those norms, but also to police others into those norms. Um, And I think that that was something that was a really eye-opening experience, that while being in a fraternity that was pretty progressive for the campus, still, like, feeling that pressure of, like, you know, white hegemic um, masculinity, you know, to push that into other people and to say, like, you have to adhere to this norm in order to be accepted into this kind of culture. And, you know, I think I had to I had to push back a bit against that a little bit. But I still felt myself kind of, you know, leaning into what it meant to be a man and saying, like, OK, will people accept me if they understand that I express myself differently or identify in a certain way? So it was it was an eye opening experience and kind of led me to the work that I do now um, and realizing that, you know, like Adam had said that this was, you know, doing anti-violence work has been for the large part championed by by women. But, it's been considered to be a women's issue. Right. And when we look at that, you know, and we a lot of people consider this a women's issue. But when you look at it, men commit violence across the board um, in the vast majority. And so what we need to be doing is switching that script from a woman's issue to it's a men's issue. And men need to be, you know, saying to other men, how do we stop this violence? How do we talk to each other to make this violence disappear? How do we have a, a better culture shift that men are leading to create safer spaces, to create uh, lines of communication. And I think we need to not let it be a woman's issue and say that this is something that we're going to just like let women tackle because we're not going to change that culture if we don't say men need to step up and step in and start having these conversations. So I got into this role and immediately I, I made my boss very aware I needed to like take on men and masculinity's work because that was what I'm passionate about and they were all for it. But I know that it's it's a it's a space where I get a lot of questions about and I get a lot of questions about why are you a man doing anti-violence work when this has been a woman's issue. And I say, you know, it's a man's issue because we have to change that culture that men commit violence against women far often than we would like to say it actually happens. In talking about masculinity and, and trying to redefine masculinity, have any of you gotten any pushback from people. I know that that some people can feel like this is very threatening. I know your goal is not to say you can't be a man, you can't be strong, these things are wrong, but what what kind of pushback are you hearing from people, Cody? Yeah, so I think a lot of the pushback comes from we're upsetting the status quo and we're saying, you know, we're asking for space to be ourselves and be authentic and to express ourselves differently. But that upsets a lot of the status quo that is around men and manhood and masculinities. Um, And people don't like that. People don't like it when we're asking to change the way that people look at the world around them, because that means that they have to reevaluate themselves and have to look inward and say, am I doing something that might be potentially harmful to the people around me? And so I think that that's the hard part is saying like, Maybe I've actually hurt somebody with my masculinity and maybe I've hurt somebody by the way I view what a man should be. And I think that that's the immediate thing is, you know, people say, you know, a guy should be like this or real men do this, which I think is one of the most weird things because masculinity looks different across all different cultures. And to say, you know, real men do something is very limiting. I think part of what I I, I find 
pretty difficult about having conversations with men about this. And where the pushback comes in is from a systemic standpoint, too, we're challenging men's power and taking away that ability to be um, thought of as sort of primary in lots of spaces that men occupy. So the pushback comes then when they realize that I'm, I may be losing status. Um, so that can be particularly difficult, I think, for a lot of men to really dig into this kind of conversation. Adam? I think that kind of other areas that we that we get pushed back in too is is the the end result of toxic masculinity often is is abuse and violence and so there's a lot of individuals uh, and certainly a lot of men that will push back and say well I have not committed abuse I have not acted out violently which is absolutely and most true men have not absolutely true yeah. right and yet um, are we collectively all genders included still only having a, a binary discussion with gender too mm-hmm. much uh, we need to to broaden that as well and collectively we're creating these systems of what it means to be uh, what it means to be a male so um, while we our, our efforts and certainly the summit on Wednesday isn't to to convince somebody who's planning to sexually assault somebody not to do that right that realistically that may not be where we reach but can we influence those that create a space where that is less acceptable behavior and where it's easier for someone who's experienced sexual violence or domestic abuse or dating violence to come forward in the wake of that and have a safer community to disclose in. That's really what we're trying to do, right? Engage well-meaning individuals and certainly well-meaning men. Um, but it, it means challenging our privilege, and that is uncomfortable. That is painful. Let's go back to the phones. Gail is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Gail. Hello. Hi. What would you like Hello? to talk about? Um, it's Dale, actually. Oh, okay. But, um, Hi, Dale. The, 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 um, the, the question I'd like to ask is, uh, in all this discussion, is what part women play in actually um, developing and creating and maintaining the kinds of roles that um, it's extreme, which I think what you're talking about, um, that this doesn't just happen out of, out of, of um, uh, some sort of totally, I don't know, inherent um, property. I, mean, I can even think about just the sort of simple acts of courtesy that we don't even question, which is, why do I need to let a woman enter an elevator first? Why do I need to open a door? I frequently encounter this. You come up to a situation like that, and it's an unspoken expectation that I'm supposed to be performing this duty as if that somehow this woman's helpless. Um, it's, I, I think that's just a small example of how that men get mixed messages from women about sure. what they're supposed to be. Yeah, Dale, that's a really interesting point. Who'd like to respond to that? I mean, what role women play in creating and perpetuating traditional masculine roles for men? Right. So I think um, it's important to recognize that um, we live in a very patriarchal society, right? And it's we all have a role to play in that, and a lot of us have to assimilate to that in order to survive in it. So, you know, we tell people that in order to not break that status quo, to not go against the grain, to perform in some of these acts that might be traditionally um, masculine or traditionally feminine. And when we break that, people question us. And so when when somebody says like, um, well, I don't want you to do this or I don't need you to do that for me, we get pushback and we get um, recourse from that. And so... You know, women still can play roles in shaping, um, you know, toxic or unhealthy masculinity by perpetuating some ideas about patriarchy and expressing ideas that real men should only do this or real boys should only do that. And we need to be able to flip that script and say, 
masculinity can look a lot of different ways. What does that mean for you? What do you need from me as as somebody who is looking to help you define what that means? So, you know, men and women can ask each other all these questions. And um, it's not to say that, you know, it's only a men's issue and that these are not these aren't innate traits for men and women. We all have human emotions. We all have the ability to feel and think critically. But you know, when we stifle that and we say real men only do this, which I've heard from both men and women, mm. you know, I see that across the board. But we need to say, you know, those are harmful things that can stifle people's expression, creativity, um, access to help, access to um, connection. So we know that that's not helpful. And I see that across the board with men and women. But women do play that role in also pushing men back into that man box and saying, you on, I'll only appreciate you if you live up to this expectation that I deem as manly. And we got to change that script, you know, say, I value who you are as a person because you can exhibit a lot of type of feelings and not just because you fit the definition that society puts out there for men. Well, and the just some of the, the things that I would mentioned at the beginning of the show, some of those lines that men and boys hear all the time when they're growing up, man up, boys don't cry, mm-hmm. don't be a sissy. I hear that coming out of the mouths of women just as often as I hear it coming out of the mouths of men. I mean, we're all part of this culture, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a question from Reed. He says, the discussion today is focusing on psychological, sociological, and emotional factors. To what extent are males hardwired for the behavior they sometimes exhibit? I mean, there is a a biological difference between men and women. Do you want to try to tackle that, Patrick? I will try to tackle that one. Yeah, (laughs) It's a big one. (laughs) One of the things that I often emphasize to folks is um, this expectation that boys are hardwired to be emotionally different is actually Uh, relatively false. Uh, The fact that infants, when they're born, research indicates that uh, young um, boys who are coded as, uh, sorry, infants that are coded as boys at birth are actually more emotional and sort of verbal in their expressions of distress than young girls are. Um, So this idea that uh, emotionality is somehow inherently feminine is actually false um, just by the way that our infants express themselves. and I, I don't know that the uh, small differences that we see in, uh, for example, hormone production by different uh, by folks of different genders is enough to explain sort of the differences that actually exhibit themselves and how we express gender. We've in, invested a lot in our idea of testosterone. Right, exactly. And uh, the fact that women produce testosterone as well doesn't also excuse the different kinds. It does, it's not enough evidence to excuse the different kinds of behaviors that we see in folks who identify as male. Um, here's a question. Well, a thought and a question from David in Cedar Rapids. He says, as a parent of two elementary school age boys, I agree there's a crisis of masculinity, for example, what it means to be a man in the United States in the 21st century, but only because there's a constant drumbeat to treat boys like defective girls and masculinity as toxic, itself a derisive value judgment. Even last week, the alternative narratives of mental health versus gun control, both valid positions upon which reasonable people can disagree. The response by the left, aired by All Things Considered, was this wasn't about institutionalizing mentally disabled and ill, but about angry men and boys in general. There was no counterpoint to that narrative that I heard. Um, so that that's a really interesting part of this discussion. I haven't heard from any of you today saying that it's a bad thing to be a boy or a bad thing to be a man. But there is, again, there's this, this concern that we are telling boys that 
not only have we told them that they can't feel and they can't think and, and mm -hmm. all of the things that you guys have been talking about, but now we're telling them, hey, there's something wrong with you just because you're a boy. Right. Uh, everybody wants to respond to that. <laughs> Adam, you can go first. Sure. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, where to start? Um, and it's a, you know, it's, a, it's an important point. I think the a lot of the the uh, really focused kind of energy that we've got right is we want to reduce sexual violence, we want to reduce domestic abuse and, and dating violence. The, these uh, these acts happen way too frequently uh, still in, in 2018 to say that the women have been leading this movement for for decades and we're still to the place that we are. We've made some great movement together, uh, but we've still got a long way to go. And and I think part of what we're trying to push forward too is just the reality that the, the violent acts and, and the toxic aspects of gender um, are are not because we're wired that way. It's it's that uh, what we're positing, right, is that that young men and boys, men and young boys, um, aren't afforded space to feel really human emotions like embarrassment and failure and insecurity and sadness and fear. Um, and so when they don't, that they bottle that up, they isolate generally, and then it gets acted out. That anger either gets acted out on the world or gets acted out internally. Um, and that's where the work that, that Patrick does and his colleagues is so important so that we can work on that. But um, as human beings, we all need connection and contact. And so that's where it's not a, a feminine thing or a masculine thing. That's a human thing. Uh, and just as a quick anecdote kind of example of that, if a, if a baby is born prematurely, they can be incubated and have clean oxygen and an uh, IV fluid. They won't thrive if they're not physically touched skin to skin. And that's because at that developmental level, that's how we understand contact is by touch. And as 19-year-olds and 29-year-olds and 59-year-olds, we still need that amount of contact. And so we're trying to create a safe space and a, and a healthy space for men to be part of that. So this is a, a pro-boy, pro-men movement. I mean, we only have about 30 seconds left, Patrick, but what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think approaching the work that we do from a deficit model of masculinity is the wrong take to have, that we need to sort of fix men. Like, there is substantial work to be done, but there's also a lot to embrace about masculinity, too. And in the work that I do and the clients that I see for therapy, it's also about, like, let's find the strengths that you have as a man and the ways that you can express yourself right now and sort of marshal them to help you express yourself more effectively while giving you some more tools for your tool belt, so to speak. I've been talking with Patrick Galligan, licensed staff psychologist at the University of Iowa, Adam Robinson, executive director of the Rape Victim Advocacy Program, and Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio.